Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Kelly Turner, Ph.D., Kelly is a researcher, author, and lecturer in the field of integrative oncology. She received her BA from Harvard University and did her PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, where her dissertation focused on the radical remission of cancer, which is a remission that occurs either in the absence of Western medicine or after Western medicine has failed to achieve a remission. The Radical Remission Project, which she founded, is an innovative website dedicated both to collecting new cases of radical remission for research purposes and to connecting radical remission survivors with current cancer patients. Her new book, Radical Remission, The Nine Key Factors That Can Make a Real Difference, encapsulates the fascinating findings of her research. And I am so delighted to welcome Kelly Turner to our show today. Hello, Kelly. Hello. I'm so happy to to be on the show. Thanks so much, Miriam. Kelly, tell us how you became interested in cancer and complementary medicine. Well, I became interested in working with cancer patients simply due to my um, childhood experiences with it. I think everyone in this country is touched by cancer in some way. And for me, it was when a friend of mine was diagnosed with cancer when we were just 14. And he passed away, unfortunately, two years later to advanced stomach cancer. And that's sort of what made me, after Harvard, um, just sort of be drawn towards helping cancer patients. And in the beginning, I was just counseling them. Now, I I had been introduced to to yoga at that time. I started practicing yoga while at Harvard. And um, my partner at the time, who's now my husband, was always very interested in uh, Buddhist meditation. So I would be lying if I said I wasn't interested in these these ideas um, before my research began. But really, I was just a counselor. And then I came across one of these cases, and I came across it in Andrew Weil's wonderful book, Spontaneous Healing. And I was just very surprised because I thought that a case like that, which is someone who turned around their stage four kidney cancer after being sent home on hospice, I thought that a case like that should have been national news. And yet here I was reading it in a 10-year-old book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So... I did a little bit of research of my own later that night and found that there were a thousand of these cases published in medical journals. And that's when I really got, you know, surprised and sort of frustrated that this, this is happening, but no one's doing anything about it. No one's studying these cases, um, looking at them as a whole. So that just sort of lit a fire under, under me. And I decided to go back for my PhD and study just this. Wow. Wow. So, Do you have any sense on how common radical remission is? It's very hard to know how common it is, actually, and that's because it's severely underreported. So the typical number that's thrown around in medical journals is one in every 60,000 cases of cancer. However, in my research now, which is going on 10 years, the way that I estimate it is that for every published case, there's a hundred more that go unpublished. So right now there's about a thousand published cases. So there's at least, in my estimation, a hundred thousand of these cases that we can learn from. Wow, wow. Now, 
Your research initially identified more than 75 different factors that could play a role in radical remission. And then you narrowed them down to the nine most prevalent ones across all the cases that you study. Can you start by giving us an overview of them? Of the nine key factors? Yeah. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And again, I always like to say that these are not definitive, conclusive uh, findings. Um, the problem with radical remission is that no one was studying these cases. And one of the reasons no one was studying them is because no one could explain them. And it's very hard to study something that you you just can't explain. You know, you look at it and you, you don't even know what's going on. And so my research was hypothesis finding research. It's called grounded theory research. It's what anthropologists use when they're studying a brand new culture. And the idea is to, instead of imposing your own ideas onto this group, um, you actually ask the special group themselves what they think is going on, and you let the hypothesis come from the ground up. Mm-hmm. So I went and found these people, and believe it or not, the vast majority of them told them that I was the very first researcher to ever ask them what they did to get well. That in and of itself is probably the most mind-boggling aspect of your book and your research. Me too. That's what I thought too. I, I really just, I couldn't believe that no one, even their own doctors had sort of, you know, shrugged their shoulders and said, wow, I'm so happy for you. But, you know, probably understandably, they didn't take the two, three hours that's needed to really do an in-depth interview. And, and I really understand that. I know how terribly busy doctors are these days and to take time out of your busy schedule to study something you can't explain, um, isn't something that's in the cards for most oncologists these days. But it was in the cards for me. And um, basically what I found after interviewing all these people is that they did lots of things to try to get well. Um, again, over 75 different things. But when I looked at, at which were the most common, there were these nine that kept coming up again over and over again in almost every interview. And people like to ask me, well, what, what were the top three? And I say, well, unfortunately, there weren't a top three. There were a top nine. <laughs> uh, it would have been a much shorter book if there were just three. Um, but it was these nine things that they kept doing over and over again. And these nine factors range from body to mind to spirit interventions. So, um, you know, things that you would expect, like changing your diet, taking herbs and supplements, and then ranging all the way to things that you wouldn't expect, like tapping into your intuition to help make health decisions. Mm-hmm. Of the nine factors, only two were physical. Yes. It was taking, take, uh, changing your diet and taking herbs and supplements. Um, I found that really quite fascinating that things like taking control of your health, following your intuition were so prominent on the list. I was surprised too. I mean, I really thought that I was going to have a long list of physical things like coffee enemas or taking shark cartilage or, you know, rubbing yourself in sea salt. You know, I, I was fully expecting many more of the common threads to be physical, but that's actually not my job as a scientist um, with this kind of research to go in with any expectations. Mm-hmm. So I just had to write down what they were telling me and, oh, well, actually I just had to press record, <laughs> but <laughs> what I kept hearing was with these mental, emotional factors. And so, you know, 
again, this isn't conclusive data. There's no guarantee that if you do these nine things, you'll heal your, heal your cancer. But what we can say is that of the people that I've studied, these are the nine things that were the most common, and seven of them, whether you like it or not, uh, were mental-emotional. Now, from a scientific standpoint, while that was surprising to me, um, it, it's not that crazy because the field of psychoneuroimmunology over the past 30 years has really explained to us that not only is there absolutely a mind-body connection, but that there is a mind-body interaction that is so strong and so instantaneous that we are only scratching the surface scientifically when it comes to understanding the power that our constant thoughts have over the chemistry of our body. You know, this is a message that has been being repeated and repeated and yet does not seem to be um, making its way across the allopathic divide. Um, you have you have interviewed many doctors, and it's not just a matter of time. Uh, <clears throat> it must be a matter of mindset as well. Yeah. Is it something that is something in the way that they're being taught? I think probably yes. I think that um, you know the old division into specializations is still very much in favor in medical training. And so you might do a rotation in psychiatry, um, but really you spend most of your 10 years of schooling getting narrower and narrower into your specialization, right? So I have a friend who's um, an eye doctor and now his very precise specialty is, is cataract surgery, right? Um, he might have taken one brief rotation in psychiatry, and even that would be focused on, you know, diagnosing severe mental illnesses and things like that. Um, so I think, I think the medical education is just set up to make you specialize in one thing. And what, what we learn from, you know, other types of medicine, like, you know, traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine or all of the alternative forms of, medica of, of medicine, they're really looking at the body and the mind as more of an integrated whole. And so you wouldn't have a cardiologist in traditional Chinese medicine. You, you have someone who looks at the whole body and is looking at how the systems are interacting, including the mental-emotional system. I get the feeling that the same revolution that brought the assembly line to automotive manufacturing... Uh, was applied to medicine in the interests of efficiency, and we have lost a lot by it. Uh, I'm sure that a cardiologist, you know, knows more about the structure of the heart, but um, he misses out on the emotional implications on the heart. Absolutely. And, and not even just the emotional implications. We can even back up a step and, and look at how our diet is affecting the heart. I mean, the connection between diet and heart disease is really only 20 years old. And that, thankfully, has made it into the, the public consciousness. But um, we're, we're just starting to learn the complexity of how what we eat and especially how we digest it affects all of the tissue in our body. So if we have an inflamed digestive tract, 
um, that is coated with mucus and it isn't soaking anything in, then the rest of the tissues in our whole body, including in the heart, are not going to, um, they're not going to be very healthy, right? So we have this budding awareness of in, inflammatory diets and um, inflamed tissue. But what I'm learning from my radical remission survivors is that just as your diet can create an inflammatory state in your body, so can chronic stress. Mm-hmm. And perhaps even more powerfully. Yeah. So it's 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 going to take a while for this shift to come from you know where mind and body were separate to now that they are constantly communicating with each other. I mean, one one thought of stress will put put so much acid into your stomach that it doesn't matter how alkaline your your beautiful meal is if you're eating it with stress and worry, you're coating your beautifully alkaline meal with tons and tons of, of, of acid. Mm-hmm. So the mind plays so much more of a powerful role than, than we all realize. And, and science is getting there. I mean, it's, it's going to take a while, but, you know, I always like to quote this one recent study on meditators where they took people who had never meditated before and they taught them how to meditate. And after just six weeks of meditation, this group of, of people had turned off their cancer genes and turned on health-promoting genes. So the, what you do with your mind affects your body even down to your genetics in, in, in the terms of which genes are, are expressed or not expressed. That's fascinating, and, and that's information that we would not have been able to even achieve uh, just a few years ago because of all the new diagnostic um, abilities that we have. Exactly. And that's where I love technology and science is that we can have these hypotheses about the mind and the body being very, very connected and, and interactive. And then we develop this technology like the MRI machine or the you know genomic expression tests. And suddenly we can see with our own eyes the difference before and after making a mental shift. So mm-hmm. You know, just just like people were talking about germs before we had the microscope, um, it wasn't until we had the microscope that we really saw it with our own eyes that, oh my gosh, there are these things, these germs that are in our bodies. And I think the same thing is going to happen with the mind-body connection. When we get the right technology to really see the impact that our thoughts and emotions have on our internal chemistry, then we'll be convinced. Mm-hmm. Now, each chapter in your book, Radical Remission, has a really gripping story of an individual's journey from, you know, really kind of end stage, very late stage cancer, um, and then the path that they took to get to remission. I was particularly struck by the story of Shin and the chapter of taking control of your health. He was treated on the basis of imaging and lab tests for a year and a half before anyone thought to physically examine him and actually touch his body and thereby discovered a tumor. It is such a commentary on the disconnect of modern medicine from traditional healing. And I I have the feeling that your book is kind of pushing in the direction of rebridging this disconnect. Would you say that's a fair statement? Um, well, it's certainly, um, you know, I, I didn't go into this book with any sort of, um, platform or mission. Um, again, I simply was trying to figure out what these people were doing, but certainly what they've told me and what my research has found is that, uh, 
the survivors that I study are certainly using a lot of the principles of more traditional medicine mm -hmm. systems. And, you know, I also interview traditional healers, um, non-Western medicine cancer healers. And that's simply because Western medicine can't explain these remissions. And so it makes sense to ask people who aren't in Western medicine how they might explain them. And what was nice is that what the healers were telling me was in agreement with what the survivors were telling me. And, you know, there is this bridge back to connecting to the body, um, looking at more than just lab results on a piece of paper, looking at, you know, the whites of the eyes, looking at the fingernails, looking at the tongue, talking to them about, you know, do they have a heavy heart? Are they, do they feel burdened? You know, um, the alternative healers that I interviewed at least, they don't have a specialty. Their specialty is whole body health. And so they're not just asking about the heart or the liver or the, the brain. You know, they're, they're looking at the entire system, including asking really personal questions about stress levels and happiness and, um, you know, your, your chi, your energy, your life force. I remember interviewing, oh, maybe two years ago, a Chinese doctor who had established a cancer institute based on the principles in Edgar Cayce's work and also the Seth principles. And one of the things that he found, one of the commonalities that he found amongst his cancer patients was that they had lost a sense of hope that they felt that their life would never get better, that they had no purpose in life. And these are some of the themes that the people in your research seem to have um, echoed. You talk about, I, I think your last chapter or one of your last chapters was having strong reasons for living where people just kind of, of lose that perspective Right. Well, certainly, um, you know, it's my research is not about trying to figure out so much what caused people's cancer because that's that's tricky territory. Um, scientifically, we we know that toxins can cause cancer. We we prove that every day when we inject rats and mice with toxins in order to give them cancerous tumors. Um, but we also know that things like viruses and bacteria and even chronic stress can lead to cancerous conditions as well. So there are a lot of different paths to a healthy cell behaving in a cancerous manner. And, you know, I'm no biologist, but my what I've sort of come to understand from my research is that cancer is just a healthy cell that has been a bit broken, um, Specifically, I think the mitochondria breaks down, but we don't need to get into that. Um, well, actually, I would like to get into that because that was the research of Dr. Kobayashi that you mentioned. Yeah. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Can, can you just expand on that? Because the notion that it's a healthy cell that has gotten sick but can become healthy again is kind of radically opposed to the burn it, poison it approach. Right, right. And again, yes, these are just theories, but they are the theories that um, keep coming up in my research of these, um, these radical survivors and their healers. So Western medicine would agree that a cancer cell is a, is a previously healthy cell that has gone awry, that for some reason is behaving very strangely. 
Um, the Western medicine approach is therefore to kill that cell that has gone awry. But many of the survivors that I interviewed and their healers, including the one you mentioned, Dr. Tsuneo Kobayashi from Japan, they aren't trying to kill those cells. They're trying to heal them. They're trying to repair them. And that is a very different approach to killing cancer and fighting it. Um, we don't know scientifically if that's possible to rehabilitate a cancer cell. Um, certainly Dr. Kobayashi thinks that it's very possible and he has some very impressive results um, of his methods. But the basic idea is that, um, so mitochondria, if you remember back to your high school biology class, are the factories of the cell. And they are in charge of, of many things, uh, creating energy for one, but they're also in, char in charge of deciding when the cell dies and when it replicates. And cancer is a cell that does not die like it should and replicates when it shouldn't. And so it makes sense that perhaps the, the core problem with the cell that has become cancerous is that its mitochondria has become damaged. And again, this is just one theory, but the reason I like this theory is because it makes sense with all the different causes of cancer. So if a virus invades a healthy cell, like take for, take for example the human papillomavirus, the HPV virus, which has been linked to cervical cancer, it could get into that cell and mess around with its mitochondria. So could bacteria. Bacteria could infiltrate a healthy cell and mess around with its, with its mitochondria. And again, we have instances of bacteria being linked to cancers, like the H. pylori bacteria that has been linked so often to stomach cancer. We also know that toxins can cause cancer. Well, again, if the toxins are affecting mitochondria function, that could explain it. And then we have something like stress. Now, there, there is no, you know, scientific proof that chronic stress causes cancer. But chronic stress over time will, will decrease respiration and oxygen levels to cells. And the mitochondria are in charge of breathing with oxygen. That's where the oxygen is processed. And when a cell becomes cancerous, it no longer breathes with oxygen. It breathes anaerobically using lots and lots of sugar. And so it's sort of like, I mean, again, and I'm not a biologist at all. I mean, I started off as a counselor. So when all these healers were talking to me about my mitochondria, I had to go, you know, dig up my old biology textbook. But it does seem to me that all roads are pointing towards mitochondria damage. And um, the, the question then is, can you repair it? Or do you have to kill the cell whose mitochondria has been, has been damaged? And all I can say is that from the people and healers that I study, they firmly believe that you can heal the mitochondria and bring things back into balance. Mm -hmm. Speaking of back into balance, um, I remember you discussed the Maori approach to health. Mm, yes. The Maori um, are the traditional healers in New Zealand, and their approach to health is very community-based, very focused on being in community, not just with nature and the land, but with each other as a tribe. And so if someone in their, in their community is sick, it is all of their responsibility to help that person heal. And they actually need to look and, and try to figure out where they have failed as a community that allowed that person to become sick. Um, so it really is a communal effort. And 
I just remember talking to this this um, Maori healer who who told me that he just couldn't understand why Americans all lived, you know, in their separate houses with their fences and that we were all cooking dinner separately. Um, he said, that's just so hard. You guys are all doing everything by yourself. And, you know, doesn't that get tiring after a while? Wouldn't you like some help from your community? Um, and of course, you know, <laughs> personally, um, I was answering, yes, you know, <laughs> it makes so much sense. So, you know, they view our individual culture as unhealthy and leading to sickness. Um, so that's, that's how they, they view it. Take it or leave it. Well, I, I think that really is very important food for thought, but we'll have to move on from that. But, um, no, really, food for contemplation. Mm-hmm. What in our society is making us sick? And, and in fact, you do discuss the need for social support as one of the, the key factors. Yes, that was one of the nine key factors, was receiving social support. So many of the people that I study would say over and over again in my interviews, I know that the love that I received from my friends and family absolutely helped me heal. And they would say, I don't know how to prove that scientifically, but that was absolutely a huge part of why I healed. And again, I just had to write it down every time it came up, and it came up over and over again. Now, that's an interesting topic um, scientifically because there's actually a lot of research that's been done on loneliness and what happens when a spouse dies or how people are going through cancer when they have 10 or more friends versus you know, no social network at all. And so there's actually really rigorous scientific evidence to show that um, social networks and your social support are very much associated with um, not only longer life, but um, survival from cancer. Mm. You even mentioned uh, having a pet as being uh, just as important. Yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, they read these studies about how it's important to have social support and they worry because they may be single and living alone. But the, the healing hormones that you get from having a pet and taking care of a pet are just as strong as you would have from, you know, having a, a spouse or a best friend or things like that. And so if, if you happen to be in a situation where you don't have a big social network of humans, um, you can certainly look into getting that, that hormone release. And again, the hormone we're talking about is oxytocin, which is just so incredibly powerful for your immune system. And you can get that from, from having a pet. You know, even the act of, of petting a dog or a cat and stroking their fur has been shown to release oxytocin um, in the master glands of the brain. So anything that you can do to get that oxytocin flowing, that's the cuddle hormone, it's the love hormone, um, you should do it because it increases your white blood cells and your natural killer cells. And you give little tips at the end of each chapter. On the, uh, I think at the end of that chapter, you said, hug somebody every day. Yeah, there's the, exactly. Um, you know, my, my publisher, I'm a researcher, so I, I'm, not a, I'm not an MD and I don't prescribe things. But my publisher really wanted me to um, give readers, you know, some ideas of how they could put these principles into action if they want to. And... I had to tap back into my experience as a counselor because as a 
psychotherapist working with cancer patients, of course, I was giving advice every week of how they could, you know, cope better or try to have a better week and stuff. So, yeah, all of the tips are very gently offered. Um, they're just suggestions if you're interested in these nine factors. But certainly one of them um, for social support is just just finding someone that you can just hug once a day because I think there's some study that's like even 30, even even a 10-second hug or something releases oxytocin into your bloodstream that's strong enough to make an impact on your body. But um, I would bring up, though, the stories. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, you know, I can put on my researcher cap and talk about studies all day, but um, what really moves me about my research is the people themselves. And I, I say over and over again, this book is not about me. This book is about the people in the book because they are the reason I did this research, and they are the reason the book is here. Um, and so to include complete healing stories in every chapter was really important to me because I wanted, I wanted readers to hear what I had heard in these amazing interviews um, about how someone started with stage 4 breast cancer and turned it around. I mean, I, I wanted people to really know somebody who had done that, and so that's why I, in, I included the stories. I thought one of the most moving stories was um, the the young man who went to Brazil with uh, the the glioblastoma, the brain tumor. That is also to me, uh, and I think everybody has their own favorite story from the book. But um, that is absolutely one of the most moving stories to me personally in the book. It's a story of Matthew, and that is his real name. And he was diagnosed in his 20s with inoperable brain cancer, um, a, a very large glioblastoma that was in the center of his brain, so it was inoperable. And he was not a religious man, a young man. He was just, a, you know, a normal, a normal guy who was living, you know, living a normal life and uh, came down with this diagnosis. So he did everything that Western medicine had to offer. He did um, as much radiation as is legally allowable for a human being. And he tried chemotherapy, but it made him so violently ill that he wasn't able to tolerate it. So his doctors here in the U.S. said, you know, you should go home and be with your family now because there's nothing more we can do. And a whole set of coincidences led him to... <laughs> to be at a, a spiritual healer's center in Brazil. And, you know, when you talk to Matthew and he, he remembers the story, he'll tell you himself, he couldn't believe that he was down there. I mean, he was not a spiritual person. Um, he, he loved being in nature, but he didn't have any ideas of energy or energy healing or anything like that. So for him to be down there was really, you know, a last stitch effort, um, but he ended up having some really powerful experiences down there. And, and the healer that he saw is nicknamed John of God. Um, so you may have heard of him in other you know, articles and things like that. But uh, the, what, what ended up happening is that when he went and saw this healer, the healer said, um, I need you to stay here. I can help you, but I need you to stay here and I need you to really work on your healing and I will, I will help you. So he ended up staying there for two years basically meditating for about six to eight hours a day, three days a week at this healer's center. Um, and he wasn't sure how long it would take to heal. Um, 
he, his doctors gave him three months to live. So any, any time he had after those first three months, he was grateful for. Um, and he just sort of fell into this calm life of meditating three days a week and enjoying the outdoors and being grateful and, um, immersing himself in this, this center that has a very strong energy to it. And two years later, one day the healer went and pulled, pulled him up to the front and said, I have an announcement to make. This man came here two years ago and now he's healed. And he said, I want you to go, you know, to the nearest city and I want you to get an MRI because I want you to, I want you to have the proof of this. So he went uh, to a city in Brazil, got an MRI and it was completely clear. So his story is much more beautiful than that. That's the, the, the short version, but, um, it's just incredible that, that, you know, that something like that is even possible. I'm curious, um, as somebody, uh, investigating integrative medicine, the, the, the bridge between, uh, complementary or, or, uh, holistic medicine and allopathic medicine, what has been your reception amongst your, the medical establishment, your medical colleagues? Have um, they been supportive? Some of them have been very supportive, which has been really nice. I would say that most of them, though, um, are skeptical. And that's all right, because they're trained to be skeptical. We all are. Um, what I usually like to remind them of, though, is that I was also trained to be skeptical. I'm a researcher as well. But I was also trained to investigate anomalies. And they were, too, if they remember back to their research classes. Um, it is a scientist's responsibility to investigate anomalies. That is just part of the scientific method. And so to not study these cases is actually scientifically irresponsible. Um, so I think most of them are supportive of the fact that I'm studying these cases. Um, publishing my book before we've had a hundred randomized control trials is what makes them a little um, less supportive. But you know, and this is where my work as a counselor comes in. Um, it took 50 years for scientists to prove that there was a definitive connection between nicotine and lung cancer. 50 years of study after study after study. Um, and as a counselor of cancer patients, um, my my goal is just to help them however I can. And so I decided to publish this book now as opposed to 50 years from now because I want them to have this preliminary research. You know, I make it very clear in my introduction that these are hypotheses only, um, but that I'm sharing it with them now because they don't have 50 years. The people that I used to counsel had three years or five or maybe three months. And if there's anything in my preliminary research that might be helpful to them, even in terms of boosting their immune system slightly so that they can, you know, tolerate their chemo better, then I want to share that with them. And so um, that was my impetus for, for sharing the research now, even though it is preliminary data. I think it's so ironic that one of the main reasons that uh, medical doctors tend to give for not talking about these alternative treatments is raising false hopes. Yes. Um, they're very good at dashing hopes. They are. They are. Um, 
I had a, a wonderful healer, energy healer in London that I interviewed through this research, and she worked very closely with an oncologist, which was surprising to me that a, a top oncologist in London would would uh, you know work so closely with an energy healer. And she said the reason she could work with him is because the first thing he ever said to her was, no one can ever tell another person when they're going to die. That is up to no one but God. Um, now, whether or not you believe in God or not, I, I do believe um, that concept, which is that no human should be able to tell another human exactly when they're going to die. I think that that's just an unknown, you know. Um, it's important to be realistic, but to take away someone's hope completely and replace it with fear of imminent death, um, that's also doing someone a disservice. So when, when, when I talk about false hope um, related to radical remission, I always say it's only false hope if what these people are doing is false. If, if it didn't happen, if they're lying to me, then I'm raising false hope. But these people, I, I have verified their cases. I've verified their diagnoses. They really did have cancer, and they really did turn it around. So what they, the fact that they exist is true. It's undeniable. Um, and we would be giving false hope if we said, if you do what they did, you'll get better, right? That's false hope. But if instead we say, this happened... And let's look at it closely so that we can understand, hopefully, why it happened to this person. Then, then we're moving forward. If we just walk past it or ignore it because we can't explain it, we, we haven't progressed. We haven't learned anything new. Um, you know, I think Western medicine likes to find a one-size-fits-all answer to every disease. So they're looking for that one chemical that's going to be put into pill and cure cancer. And... Oh my gosh, I hope that happens. <laughs> I am the first person who will say that I hope we can find a, a magic bullet for cancer. But I'm not convinced we will. And I think that's because I think cancer can be caused by a mul multitude of different factors. I think that mitochondria can fail for many different reasons. And because of that, I don't think we're necessarily going to find a one-size-fits-all solution. And you know, that also makes my, my colleagues a little nervous is that, you know, there isn't, I didn't find one thing. I found nine. Mm. And some people did some of those nine things more than the others. Um, and differently really, than others. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Not everybody had exactly the same herbs and supplements. Not everybody released the exact same emotions from their past, right? Some people were dealing with anger over a failed marriage. Other people were dealing with regret over you know, never going for their dream career. So there's so much room for individuality um, in these nine factors. And that's because that's what I saw. You know, I, I didn't see everybody taking exactly the same supplements. I saw people taking supplements, but it depended on their particular cancer and their particular body. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of room for individual variation in cancer healing. And um, as opposed to that making me... Uh, you know, as a researcher, throw my hands up and say, oh, well, then if it doesn't work for everybody, then we shouldn't study it. I, I'd like to get a little more subtle than that, which is this is working for some people and not for others. Let's try to figure out why. Absolutely. My husband is a hypnotherapist, and I was very pleased that you recommended hypnosis in your book as a way of releasing suppressed emotions. Mm -hmm. um, and 
you know, he gets people coming with perhaps the underlying um, symptom is anxiety of one one form or another, but it can arise from such a, a multitude of different causes. And this is what is mirrored in your own research. Um, you you gave an interesting little takeaway on releasing suppressed emotions. How about recapping that for us? Oh, which takeaway was that? There were a few. Let the emotions come in and then keep on going out. Oh, oh, right. Um, That that is a wonderful technique that I I can't claim credit for at all um, because it came from one of the healers that I interviewed. But um, they refer to it as an emotional waterfall, which is that the idea that when emotions come to you, whether they be positive or negative, that's fine. Let them come. Let yourself feel them fully and then let them leave you. So it's like as if every day you're standing under an emotional waterfall. So you might have anxiety or fear come up one day, especially when you're dealing with cancer. That's bound to happen. And let yourself feel it. Let yourself have a good cry. Let yourself feel that fear and really look at it, you know, straight on. But don't hold it in your body. And certainly don't um, don't suppress it and not really feel it, right? You want to let it, let yourself feel it fully and then let it wash out of you. And the, the people that I study did that and the healers that I study recommended that. And, um, I think it's an, I think it's just a good way to live life in general because I find for me, if I'm holding on to a grudge or if I'm holding on to regret about a mistake I made, it really affects my present moment more than I realize. It, it, you know, it holds me back or it makes me not be able to focus fully on what's in front of me. So the idea of standing under this emotional waterfall every day, letting things come in, but also letting them go out, I think is um, really interesting advice and certainly one that I've adopted into my own life. Your book is both inspiring and empowering. Is, is there a kind of a, a summary message that you would like to... Um, impart to the listeners? I guess I would say that I would want the listeners to know that, first of all, these radical remissions do happen. So these aren't just anecdotes. They are facts, and thousands of these cases have been reported. So, number one, these cases are happening. Number two, we have so much to learn from them. So the nine factors in my book are just the tip of the iceberg of what we have to learn about the body's healing potential. And um, the third thing I would say is simply that it all seems to come back to the immune system. You know, the immune system, we didn't even know it existed 50 years ago, right? Scientifically, we didn't, we didn't know about it. And so it's a lot more capable than we think. And um, if we can give it what it needs to do its job, it can actually do a great job of popping cancer cells all over the body. So... Boosting the immune system is is sort of what all the nine key factors have in common. I just want to kind of uh, re-emphasize that point because the emotional aspects of stress, anger, fear, um, whether expressed or suppressed, are just so damaging to to our whole body, to the immune system, that if we don't learn to deal with them, 
um, particularly in, in modern society, uh, we're, we're just setting ourselves up for chronic illness and, and, you know, acute illness. Um, what are some of the ways that you found most useful, that your, your uh, interviewees found most useful? I know you mentioned meditation and other things that, uh, like that. Yeah. Um, I think the main idea is just to realize that our bodies have two modes of operating. One is fight or flight, and one is rest and repair. And your immune system comes, on, comes into play in that second mode of rest and repair. And when you're in fight or flight, your immune system is on hold. Because it's, when you're fighting or flighting, you, this is not a good time to like, you know, clean, up, clean up the attic, right? This is the time <laughs> to, to deal with the stressor. Um, so your immune system actually doesn't really do anything unless you switch off fight or flight and go into rest and repair mode. Now, hopefully we do this when we're sleeping, but I, I believe that the human body was meant to be in rest and repair mode for most of the day. And our, our current culture just doesn't have us behaving like that. You know, we're constantly bombarded with tons of emails and tons of to-dos and running around and everything's rushed. And that's why we see, you know, a nation that has insomnia and a nation that, you know, has huge amounts of people dealing with depression and anxiety. And I think part of it is, is that we're not turning on that parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and repair mode. Um, how did the people that I study, the radical remission survivors, how did they do that? In a variety of ways. And again, it's all based on individually what, what floats your boat, I should say. But um, certainly they got into that that way of, of operating, that rest and repair mode through meditation, through prayer, through things like uh, gratitude practices, um, you know, seeing a therapist, seeing a hypno- hyp- hypnotherapist to release things that they were even holding on to unconsciously, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of times our bodies are holding onto fear that we don't even know is really there because it might be from a, a memory from childhood that we can't even remember anymore. So all the different ways that you can to sort of unlock whatever's being held in your body and um, get into a, a, a state of being where you feel really relaxed and free. For some people, that's dancing. For some people, it's watching funny movies. Um, for other people, it's, it's calling a friend and asking them how they're doing. But right. whatever, whatever can take you out of that work mode, you know, that busy mode, and puts you into deep breaths. If you're breathing deeply, you are probably in rest and repair mode. And um, the people that I study made sure that they were breathing deeply most of the day. Wonderful advice. Tell us about the Radical Remission Project at RadicalRemission.com. That is where I'm hoping to continue my research. So it was, it's not easy to find these radical remission survivors because their doctors don't publish their cases and they are not tracked in the National Cancer Registry, which is why it's so hard to know how often this is happening. But luckily, one of the wonderful advances of technology is the internet. And I think that it can be a really powerful way for us to start tracking these cases and, uh, and learning from them. So, it's a, it's a very uh, basic site. Uh, it's, it's just 
you know, self-funded by me, so it uh, doesn't have any Google bells and whistles yet. But um, it, it is a place where you can very quickly submit your radical remission story so that I can have it for my research database. Um, and also, you can, you can make that um, your case public so that cancer patients can come and read your story about how you healed. Um, I think my goal is so that my dream is that if someone is diagnosed, say, for example, with breast cancer today, that tonight they could go onto the site and say, you know, show me all the cases of, of radical remission from breast cancer that you have in your database, and they could spend their night reading that as opposed to uh, anything else they'd find on a WebMD that would make them scared. Very powerful and positive indeed. And is that the best website for you, Kelly? Sure. Yeah, that's a great one for, for the research, RadicalRemission.com. Um, if you want to know more about um, me or the book, um, you can also find me at DrKellyTurner.com. Great. So we've been speaking with Dr. Kelly Turner about her book, Radical Remission, Nine Key Factors That Can Make a Real Difference and Surviving Cancer Against All Odds. Kelly, I, I just bless you for your work, and I hope that it will get out um, more widely and that you will start having these cases pour into your website, RadicalRemission.com. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Miriam. Next week, our guest is going to be Ted Chu, talking about his book, Human Purpose and Transhuman Potential. This is a book that Barbara Marks Hubbard has called probably one of the most important books of the decade. Won't want to miss it. Well, you know, you'll find all of the books and films that we discuss here on NCR Radio on our website, ncreview.com, as well as our podcast archive and uh, lots of other reviews and titles. And if you enjoy reading and would like to build up your own library, why don't you consider joining our team of reviewers? We're always looking for new talent and would love to have you on board. Just email Julie at reviews at ncreview.com and tell her you're interested. And now we're going to close with our track of the week called Lonely Lion by Celia.
smile as long as he is pacing out his rage. I am watching him. He is watching me. He seems to think that I don't have a cage. Well, he wishes that he had my life. He doesn't see the prison of my heart has got me tied. That was Lonely Lion from the album Breathe by singer-songwriter and comedian Celia. She's been described as a cross between an earthy Enya, Joan Baez, and Tina Fey. Hailing from Wisconsin, she dishes up the most delicious concoction of the silly and sacred, delighting audiences across the nation. You can find out more on her website, celiaonline.com. And that's our show for today. I do hope you'll join us next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye 